Welcome to the newest edition of Ticket Splitters, the Grassroots Midwest podcast. We're really excited this week to have Reed Felsing, attorney at law, uh, on to talk about hot subject in the news, in politics these days, nonprofit organizations, 501c3s, 501c4s, 527 organizations. Everybody likes to talk about quote unquote dark money. Um, very few people actually understand what these nonprofit organizations are, what they're allowed to do, what their disclosure requirements are. And so we're just going to have a wide ranging conversation with Reed about how these organizations work, how they stay in compliance or don't with the law, maybe some horror stories about uh, some folks who didn't walk that line the way they were supposed to. I'm particularly excited about this because Reed and I have known each other for a lot longer than Grassroots Midwest has existed. Reed was one of my students when he was an undergraduate at Saginaw Valley, and one of Reed's former students uh, was an intern at Grassroots Midwest a couple years after we got started. So thanks for coming on the show, Reed. Thank you for having me. So like I said, we hear a lot in the news. You hear a lot from the talking heads about booga, 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 dark money. You hear a lot about 501c4 organizations, uh, 501c3 organizations, 527s, and very few people, particularly in the general public, are at all clear on what these organizations are and what they're allowed to do. So I think the, the first thing uh, to ask you about is what are these nonprofit organizations? What's the difference between a 501c3, a 501c4, and where do 527s come into this? All right, so the language that you're talking about, 501c3, 501c4, and 527s, all that comes from IRS code. So those are the signifying terms that we give these organizations. A 501c3 is a tax-exempt organization with charitable purpose, and for the purpose is generally to lessen the burden of government and extend itself into charitable purposes that can be for education, scientific reasons, against cruelty of animals, whatever it might be. Uh, there's several different classifications for it. The idea is that it goes out into the public and does some kind of public good. That's the 501c3. The 501c4 is a designation for a social welfare organization. And the idea of the social welfare organization, its primary purpose has to be to spread the good word about any kind of issues that are affecting the community or learning about issues that are involving the community and educating the public about those issues. And then lastly, you have a 527 tax-exempt organization, and that is really designated for uh, political contributions, and it is a group specified for that, and the government allows for that kind of organization to exist. Now, going back to the 501c3s and c4s, they have the ability to engage in some lobbying. The c3 has no ability to deal with anything to do with candidates. The c4 has a little bit more leeway in terms of dealing with candidates. Um, but ideally, uh, those are those three vehicles that most people refer to when they're talking about quote-unquote dark money. Okay, um, so let's dig a little bit deeper on what is permissible to do with some of these organizations. So, as you said, a 501c3 is a charity. Um, I think people have a pretty clear idea in their mind of what we mean when we say something is a charity. So this is for, you know, making donations to, say, help the homeless, or you brought up preventing cruelty to animals. Um, what are some examples of some 501c3s that people might be familiar with? Well, the big ones you can think of are like Red Cross. 
Uh, a lot of hospitals would fall under this, so long as they're a nonprofit hospital, they fall under a C3. Uh, schools, charter schools, um, universities, private universities would fall under this if they're not part of the public system. They would fall under a 501c3. Those are your most common you know, C3 entities that you would see out there. Right, and I think that's very interesting. I don't think most people think about, say, a charter school or a private university when they think about a charity, but those are in the Internal Revenue Code. Those are all lumped together with, say, the Red Cross or you know, the ASPCA or organizations like that. They all really, for tax purposes, from a regulatory standpoint, all fall in the same bucket. That's correct. Uh, the only thing that might be a unique about the schools and the universities, schools, universities, and hospitals, they have additional um, uh, disclosures that they have to make on their Form 990, their tax returns. There's extra schedules for schools and hospitals that might apply, but that applies for any specific 501c3 if they're in a unique situation. Sure, sure. <clears throat> okay, so a 501c3 is a charity sort of broadly defined. Um, a 501c4, you said, a social welfare organization. So unlike, say, a charity that's going to be going out and healing the sick or preventing cruelty to animals or collecting blood for, um, you know, to send to disaster zones, 501c4s have got a little bit more of an advocacy tilt to them. Yeah, so the, by definition, they're a social welfare organization. They're there to be able to examine what's going on in the community. What, what does the community need, and how can they be able to send that message out to the community? And how can they engage the civic leaders in that community to be able to address those issues that they have identified? So it becomes a little bit more of the issue advocacy is the term that you throw out there, not so much charitable. Charitable organizations are, are doing something for the effort, which that's not to say that C4 entities can't do that, but the C4 is really focusing on finding out what those issues are and advocating for a position on those issues. Right, and so both of these organizations are allowed to engage in some amount of issue advocacy, but the thresholds are different, right? Correct, so a C3 entity, uh, again, it can't really engage in any of the candidates or ballot initiatives, but what it can do is engage in grassroots lobbying, and that's something that C3s are, are taught, uh, is that you can be able to go through with this. Now, the threshold for a C3 is typically at 5%, and that 5%, you can look at their budget. Are they use, expending 5%? Are they using their, their workforce or their volunteers above 5%? But that's the number. However, they can go above that 5% and go up to 20 to 25% of budget, workforce, volunteer, whatever it might be. Um, so long as they give the disclosure under their Form 990 under uh, 501H. And then in that disclosure, you have to identify what lobbying efforts that you're making out of that 501C3. Now going on to the 501C4, the 501C4 has a different test. It's called the primary purpose test. And the primary purpose test ultimately says that when you form a social welfare organization under 501C4, that the primary purpose is for the social welfare um, issues that are in the purpose statement. And the definition for that is quite vague, but you can just go by the basic of well, what's primary, 50% plus one. Now there's a lot of literature out there that says the best course of action of staying with primary purpose is using you know, 60% of your budget, your workforce, sure. towards primary purpose, and then the other 40% could go towards uh, more political activity. Sure, that makes sense. And that's, uh, as you brought up, the 
those purpose statements and the regulations that apply to them are are fairly vague. And we're going to come back to that a little bit more um, later in the show when we talk about on a practical level, how some of these different organizations get used. But I think it's important to keep in mind that, um, you know, there is a great deal of vagueness in this law, um, in this section of the Internal Revenue Code. And that's part of what makes some of this political activity permissible and makes some of these organizations seem more political than others. Correct. And there's something to point out, too, is that the regulations of these entities don't just end with the IRS. They also are enforced by campaign finance regulations, both at the federal level and at the state level. If they're for state and local officials, the Michigan Campaign Finance Act would apply. And for your federal uh, offices, your FEC would apply. So I think our audience members at this point are already picking up on the fact if this is a route that you're going to go down, you really shouldn't do it without competent counsel. We've been talking for a few minutes here, and as Reed just pointed out, this is an extraordinarily complex regulatory environment between the regulations from the Internal Revenue Code, the regulations from the Federal Election Commission, if you're involved in a federal election, or talking about federal candidates or federal office holders, and then state-level regulations on a state-by-state basis, where the way that these nonprofit entities and their political participation are regulated, both in terms of what they're allowed to do and, more importantly, what they are required to disclose, is going to vary pretty widely between states. Yes, very much so. Uh, So state-by-state, you have different campaign finance rules and they have different tests to be able to determine what is express advocacy, what is issue advocacy, and those are very important distinctions that you have to make when moving forward with the activities of your said organization. All right, so we've talked a lot about 501c3s and 501c4s, and we're going to come back to that when we talk about things like uh, disclosure. But I want you to talk a little bit about what a 527 organization is, because I think that there is a lot of confusion out there about what these types of organizations are allowed to do. They get used quite differently by different folks. I mean, some politicians have their own 527s to pay office holder expenses, um, and sometimes these 527s are engaged in explicitly political, uh, you know, express advocacy activity. Yeah, so 527 organizations, again, it falls under a tax-exempt organization, the IRS code or subsection or or section 527, but it is for a political um, action committee. Now, when you're talking about PACs, things of that nature, 527, uh, you know, is is interchangeable, I suppose. But then you have to think about what type of PAC are you opening. Is it a super PAC? Is it something that's going to be involved with the party? Is it going to be an independent PAC, a leadership PAC? And a lot of those will come to the campaign finance level. So as you identify what the PAC is, uh, it's something that has to go through your Secretary of State. Here in the state of Michigan, we call it Secretary of State. But there's going to be some state office that will be uh, in charge of registering those PACs to maintain the disclosure filings for those PACs, and then also to determine if the funds are being used appropriately or the funds are even coming into the PAC appropriately. So, for example, if there's a PAC-to-PAC transfer and one of the PACs is out of state, well, we have to be able to certify that uh, that transaction was up to snuff. So there's, uh, there's a lot of intricacies to the 527, and the reason for that is because it's very transparent. You, you see the things that are going on there, which makes it kind of different than the 501c3 and the c4, is that you can call it dark money, but really the transactions are relatively transparent 
compared to those that come from the C three or the C fours. Sure, sure. And so the other important difference here is these 527s can, in fact, uh, depending on how they're organized, engage in express advocacy. So I think it's important to draw that distinction now for our listeners. Um, when we say issue advocacy in the context of a 501c3 or a 501c4, what we're talking about is encouraging voters, members of the community, citizens at large to take some action whether that's to contact an elected policymaker and give them a piece of your mind, whether it's to you know participate in some effort to influence a policy or to make some sort of change in a community. That's what we mean when we say issue advocacy. When we say express advocacy, is hey, go vote for this guy. Right, right. So that, that hits it right on the head. Express advocacy is that you have to use the language of voting for or against a candidate or a ballot initiative. And here in the state of Michigan, they hold that very strictly. Um, so the idea is that you have to use those specific words. Just using the candidate's name doesn't necessarily mean that you're telling the uh, reader of that message that you're telling them to vote for or against. You could be saying, go uh, talk to candidate X and explain to him that he's doing a fantastic job with uh, servicing the parks or whatever it might be. When you're talking about that kind of language, your your direction of the message is to congratulate somebody, to let them know they're doing a good job, um, let them know that, they, that the community appreciates what they're doing for the parks. That's just a very broad example, but the idea is that you're you're talking about the parks. You're not talking about re-electing someone or electing someone into office. Whereas the other hand, express advocacy is that you have to have that message of go vote for candidate X in the upcoming election. That would qualify as express advocacy. And if you are a C4, and in particular a C3, jumping into that, you subject yourself to campaign finance regulations, not to mention the IRS regulations. Uh, should deviate a little bit too is that the 501c3s and the c4s they have to comply with irs regulations which are a little bit more strict than the michigan campaign finance act regarding state and local politicians uh, or i'm sorry state and local um, ballot initiatives and uh, candidate campaigns with the irs they look at several factors outside of just express advocacy they look at the factors of what is the ongoing message before the election came up and how often was this message going out about this particular issue before they mentioned candidate x was it just a very abrupt message and then it stopped about candidate x on an issue or was that issue brought up years ago so then the irs will make that determination as to if the 501c3 or c4 are in compliance with <laughs> their standards of express advocacy versus issue advocacy that makes perfect sense all right so that's a really important distinction between issue advocacy and express advocacy. The way we typically explain this to clients that we work with in this space, um, the first thing we tell them before we tell them to see you or another attorney who's an expert on these things is you can't use the, what we call the magic words when you're working with one of these C-designated nonprofits. And what we mean by the magic words is vote, elect, defeat, um, even support, unless it's in the context of supporting a policy rather than supporting a candidate. Um, those are sort of the no-nos that can get you in trouble with the Internal Revenue Service. Yeah, and that's pretty sound advice. I mean, the farther away that you can be with that express advocacy test, the better. So mm -hmm. if you can be able to use the person's name and avoid language that could be interpreted as supporting or opposing a particular candidate, 
the better. Uh, the idea is when you're looking at any piece that goes out by any medium, it could be a mailer, TV ad, uh, any, anything, um, you'd have to be able to look at the language and think to yourself, what are we talking about here? Is it the issue or is it the candidate and what's the call to action? That makes perfect sense. And that's a really good point uh, in the context of these C designated organizations, particularly with the 501c4s, is making sure that there is that call to action there, right? You're, you're sort of walking up to the line if all you're doing is sending a positive or a negative message that has to do with a candidate. If you're going to mention a candidate in one of these issue advocacy communications, you have to have some sort of call to action. Right, and usually that call to action has to relate to the purpose of that 501c4. Right. So when the C4 is formed, uh, it has to be able to expressly state what its purpose is. Right. And you can create that purpose as broad as you want within the confines of what the IRS will allow. And for a C4, that can be generally broad. Bringing back to a C3, a C3 is limited only to the enumerated uh, purposes of a charitable purpose. Mm -hmm. The C4 is broad, it's social welfare organization, so it can be for any social welfare issue that you can think of. Um, and they can also be geographically as wide as you want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I guess the same could apply for the C3, but the idea is that both those ent entities have to serve a community. I guess that's another thing to point out. It can't serve one person. So you wouldn't be able to see a C4 like uh, in support of candidate X. That wouldn't be a right. purpose that the IRS would allow. But they can say we're for parks and recreation, and candidate X is a huge advocate for parks and recreation, for example. Right. And so you are walking us into another part that I want to talk about as it relates to 501c4 organizations, which are very popular in politics these days. Um, and this is sort of Michigan-specific, as you pointed out, it's not permissible to have a 501c4 organization that serves the purpose of electing or supporting a candidate. And yet, we see all over Michigan, um, particularly at the state legislative level, that there are 501c4 organizations that are pretty obviously associated with the efforts of one candidate. Right. Frequently, the board members of that 501c4 organization will be political staffers or attorneys um, for said candidate. And what makes that permissible is that there is this social welfare purpose for the organization. And as long as the activities that this organization engages in are within that mission statement, that purpose statement for the 501c4, um, that's permissible because in Michigan, it's permissible to coordinate between a 501c4 and a candidate committee for state level elections. Do I have that right? Generally right. There are some issues that might come up with the board, not necessarily from a campaign finance uh, standpoint, but a 501c3 and a c4 both have to have what we call disinterested directors. So there has to be enough distance between each director within themselves. So you can't have a family of you know two brothers and a sister sitting on a board of a C4 because they're connected by family. And the other thing would be business interests is usually what the IRS looks for by 35% ownership or, or more. You, you wouldn't be able to be calling yourself a disinterested director. But yes, it, you know if you're talking to most people in Lansing, it's common knowledge that a lot of politicians you know, have some C4 that's somehow connected to them one way or the other. They might not fill the board entirely with staffers, 
but there might be a staffer on the board. Ideally, you just find other people outside of your quote-unquote circle and just have a, a liaison on that board. Right. Typically, the arrangement that I've seen most frequently, and there's a lot of diversity here, is you'll have one uh, staffer or political staffer for that politician that will be on the board of the 501c4 organization. And then there's typically an attorney and maybe an accountant that are on there as well, um, which is, is probably a good idea anyway, given the complexity that we really just scratched the surface of today in terms of compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, having an attorney and an accountant on your board probably makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And then also even looking at the purpose of whatever your organization is, let's say if it's more healthcare driven, it looks nice if you throw a couple doctors on that board. Sure. Uh, so you, you try to make the board to be uh, aligned with your purpose. But yeah, from an administrative standpoint, having an attorney, having an accountant that can be able to do all your filings and ensure that the, the activities conducted by uh, your respective organization, they're they're following the IRS guidelines, they're following the campaign finance regulations. Right. Um, now we're starting to get into the stuff that makes people angry, which I refer to as the good stuff, right? <laughs> so we've established that in Michigan anyway, there are a lot of politicians that have these 501c4 organizations. And, and frankly, our, our firm does a lot of work with these organizations, whether they're affiliated with a politician or they're, they're truly independent organizations. Um, and what makes that possible is that it's uh, that level of coordination is permissible in state-level elections. It's actually a big no-no in federal elections, isn't it? Yes. So there's something to be said about identifying your jurisdiction. And so when you're getting up to the FEC level compared to the Michigan Campaign Finance Act level, uh, you are now taking yourself into a different test. The FEC regulations mimic a lot what the IRS asks of the C4 and the C3s um, when making a determination of express advocacy versus issue advocacy, which is a multiple factor test Mm -hmm. that looks at timing, that looks at context, that looks at a lot of different things on a case-by-case basis to determine if something has crossed the issue advocacy world into the express advocacy world. And um, it's not as, you know, I should say, Michigan, quote-unquote, strict as in, you have to see the words supporting or opposing a candidate. It has to be very tied together. And, and let me give a good example here, and I'll, I'll give a bipartisan example of what I'm talking about here, is that uh, building a better Michigan, there's a news article about the 527, in uh, some of its uh, advocacy that it was pushing out, it had the language of Governor um, Whitmer going out and then it said support somewhere in that message it didn't clearly state support Gretchen Whitmer but they pieced it together that they should have qualified those as what we call independent expenditures so even if it was a 527 it should have been reported um, as an in-kind contribution because for they were campaign. engaging in express advocacy because that was considered express advocacy whereas the 527 was calling that just issue advocacy and didn't have to be reported as in-kind contribution to that particular candidate. Um, now let's look at a bipartisan flip of it. Uh, we look out, outside the state to Donald Trump Foundation in New York. We have mm-hmm. another situation where uh, it, what's fascinating about that one is that you have somebody that's in a unique situation. He wears multiple hats. He's a famous figure, he's a political candidate, and he's the head of a 501c organization, 501c3 being Trump Foundation. Now in that particular um, at New York case, they were examining his fundraising efforts when he went out to Iowa 
and they had to look at the context of everything that was going on. He was raising money for his foundation, but if you looked at everything, it had his Make America Great Again uh, mm-hmm. logo out there. Okay, well That's his campaign slogan. So is it connected to his campaign, or is that the foundation? So what are you raising money for? And then also, because if you're saying Trump Foundation, are you connecting that C3 to a political candidate, even though it is your founder and, and somebody that's right. heavily involved with that foundation? But uh, as Justin Sheehan would always say is that, Nobody owns a nonprofit, including a 501c3. The right. community owns it. You know, right. that's a, even even if it has your name on it, the right. Donald J. Trump Foundation. You don't own that. It's a public asset in a right. certain sense um, because it's a charity. It's exempt from taxes. In fact, you can take a deduction for donating to it. Correct. Correct. So the, these are the the fascinating things that we see come up in campaign finance. Is that it's not really a cut and dry situation. A lot of times. We have to examine all these factors, like what hat is this person wearing? What does the language on the piece say? And so you have to really uh, give full consideration to all these factors to determine whether you're crossing the path of issue advocacy, express advocacy. Are you supporting a candidate? Are you opposing the candidate? These are all questions you have to ask. Sure. So I want to ask one more sort of technical question in this realm and then uh, maybe drift off into the realm of philosophy a little bit. Um, So one of the things that makes these 501c4 organizations specifically attractive to a lot of politicos is the disclosure or rather the lack of disclosure that's required for donations um, and to a large extent expenditures to and from 501c4 organizations. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So that's what makes the 501c4 the ideal vehicle for you know campaign, uh, I shouldn't say campaign. Campaign for, adjacent. Campaign <laughs> adjacent for issue advocacy uh, because of the disclosure requirement, which is diminishing each and every day. At first, you didn't have to be able to disclose unless it, uh, the threshold came over $5,000 for any particular donor, where you had to disclose name, address, contact information. Uh, there was be a, a whole schedule for that on your Form 990. As of last year, they removed that requirement as an executive order. Uh, so now uh, that disclosure is simply not there. So where is the benefit? Is that you could have money go into a tax-exempt organization that can engage in issue advocacy that could be adjacent uh, to a particular candidate, um, I should say, not you know, it's not direct directly applied to that candidate, but it just it can just align with that candidate, and uh, no one would know where that money came from. Now, mm-hmm. with your five twenty sevens, that's money that you report to uh, a state agency that is showing out to the world in its full transparency, so you can be able to attach where money comes from if you see that there's a piece going out that may not be using the express language of voting for a candidate, but it seems to be favoring um, issues right. that that candidate's very strong in. Uh, so your your 527 has to show its hand. Even your 501c3 has to show its hand. Right. The 501c3 has to show its hand because people donate for the tax deduction. Right. Uh, the 501c3 has that advantage over everybody else in terms of raising funds is that you can tell your donors that you can deduct this from taxes. Mm-hmm. A C4 and a 527 cannot do that. Um, so, so anyway, the beauty of the C4 is the anonymity of money coming in. So there's plausible deniability of saying, like, all oh, this interest is involved. No, you, all you know is the name of the C4 and the name of the directors mm-hmm. because that's provided um, on, your, on your state filings. Right. Um, and so 
you know, much like with a 501c3, I mean, we see all the time that corporations make donations to charities, right, to further the good work of charities, whether that's the Red Cross or the ASPCA or someone else. Um, 501c4 organizations are also allowed to take uh, corporate money um, in unlimited amounts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's where some folks get uh, heartburn about the participation of these 501c4 organizations in the issue advocacy, the sort of political process, is not only do they not have to disclose their donors, which um, some people find great heartburn in, um, they're also allowed to take money from corporations um, to further their social welfare purpose. Um, And so that's another thing that, to your point, makes them sort of ideal for engaging in political activity. It's a lot easier to get a very, very, very large check from a corporation than it is from one individual or from a couple. Right, yeah. So, I mean, that's the key thing of the C4 is getting that corporate dollars. And especially if the corporation wants to give money and not have people, or not get backlash from people that aren't exactly on board with that particular issue. Right. That That's a double win for them. They can get the money into that issue and they don't face the business consequences of it. Uh, corporations could be able to give to a PAC as well. Um, for, for certain PACs, I should say, there's limitations on that, but there's ways to be able to get that money through there, but there's transparency that's involved with that. That's right. Um, that's absolutely right. And, uh, that's an important piece of this. Um, uh, the other thing, of course, for a lot of institutions, whether they're corporations or other types of institutions that are involved in politics is, you know, direct campaign contributions. There are limits on those, um, in terms of how much an individual can give to a particular campaign. Um, as you mentioned, that's all disclosed, but also there's just an upper limit to how much you can give. Um, even for a corporation's political action committee, um, there's an upper limit. It's quite high. Right. Um, but there's an upper limit for how much they can give to an individual candidate. Um, there's no limit on how much you can give to a 501c4. Correct. So that's your other goal around is that, okay, let's say you have a, a rich uncle that wants to put some money into the campaign. Well, that rich uncle is limited to be able to put into the committee to elect, well, you might have the C4 available that could be able to, again, if it's a, got an issue that's aligned with that particular candidate and that C4 right. board agrees with that, <clears throat> that that position that the candidate has on it, well, they can be able to share that information with the community. Sure, and that's uh, that's certainly been our experience. I mean, certainly there are, uh, you know, we've seen plenty of corporate donors to 501c4s. Um, we've also seen a lot of individual donors. Um, one of the other things that, um, you know, with uh, these, certainly with the 501c3 and the 501c4 organizations, they can take money from foreign nationals. Yes, there's limitations from IRS standpoint for both of those as well, especially right. for the C3 because they want to be able to monitor, especially if it's a... Um, a dangerous zone. So, I mean, if you're getting a lot of money from Syria or some place that might have a lot of terrorist organizations, they want to make sure that uh, the money is coming in or even going out and being expended is is not going to be furthering some kind of terrorist organization. Or Sure, there are certainly limitations on it, but that's, a, that's another distinction from your typical political accounts, right? A can- candidate's committee to elect, right. they can't take money from foreign nationals Correct. at all. Right, correct. Um, So I want to venture off a little bit into the sort of realm of philosophy. I keep alluding to the fact that um, these organizations, particularly the 501c4 organizations, um, are controversial. And so I'd like to hear your own thoughts about, um, from just sort of a philosophical good government perspective, 
why should these organizations exist? I've certainly got my own ideas, but I'm interested to hear yours as a practitioner in this area. Maybe not from a philosophical standpoint, but from a constitutional standpoint, we say you fall on the First Amendment, you know, the right to free speech. Um, we know from Citizens United and the conversations you have about that, corporations apparently have that speech. And uh, But taking that back a level is that, yes, even as a person, that I should be able to give to an organization and not have to have that information disclosed. Well, there's a vehicle available for me to be able to do that. If I so choose to donate to something that may be a controversial issue, right? I want to be able to do that and help that cause, and but not have to face the backlash of the society. Why would you want to prevent average Joe citizen from being able to do that? But also, in another standpoint, is that uh, I bring up the First Amendment, uh, you know, right to free speech. Think of it this way: is that how many uh, news organizations can be able to talk about a candidate and be able to talk about a particular issue that might be for or against a candidate, or might put a candidate in a bad light, or somebody who's holding office in a bad light? Do they have to face campaign finance scrutiny because they're saying something for or against? Right, they have to disclose who all their subscribers are? Right, all their subscribers, anybody that put advertising dollars into that news organization, do they have to disclose all of that? Right. So, um, Yeah, and I, I, I think that's right. That, that dovetails pretty nicely with my own view. The anecdote that I always use about this is, you know, ultimately what we're talking about with a 501c4 organization, right, is anonymous paid political speech. Um, and that gives some people some real heartburn. I think the, the First Amendment argument here is the right one. Others are free to disagree. Um, and it's very clearly what the founders intended when they wrote the Constitution. And we know this because they were literally all engaged in anonymous paid political <laughs> speech. Um, one of the most sort of revered documents of the American founding, the Federalist Papers, um, those are virtually all signed anonymously. <laughs> Very good point. Um, and so I think it's important to keep that in mind. Um, you know, look, I'm a Democrat, um, and it tends to be, there tends to be more howls about this sort of activity from my side of the aisle than from the Republican side of the aisle. And what I keep coming back to is, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of causes that can be described as sort of liberal or progressive that would not have been able to make the progress that they've made in this country without reference to anonymous paid political speech. Right. Um, you know, I mean, you, you think about a lot of those things. Um, for my liberal friends, um, you know, I, I would just remind them that most of the liberal advocacy organizations that um, people in my political tribe think about they have 501c4 arms. Uh, you know, pick your favorite liberal advocacy organization. <laughs> the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, just run down the line. Um, Equality Michigan, to take a Michigan example. All of these organizations have 501c4 arms. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly they, they have 501c3 arms as well because they go out and do charitable good works in the community. You know, I use the Equality Michigan example, right? They have a, um, a victim services unit that's funded by their 501c3 side. They go out and they provide services to victims of hate crimes, and that's a charitable purpose. Mm -hmm. But they also engage in political advocacy, and they accept money anonymously into the advocacy side on the 501c4 side, just like a lot of progressive advocacy organizations do, and a lot of conservative advocacy organizations do as well. And it, it's sort of essential for those groups to be able to go out and speak on behalf of folks um, who don't want to be disclosed. 
Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you're hitting it on the head is that if you want to be able to get information out about something, sometimes you have to use different tools to get that information out. Right. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you a lot for coming on the program. This has certainly, I think, been very informative to a lot of our listeners about how these organizations work. It's a question I get asked all the time by my friends and family who really aren't directly involved in politics. And uh, I'm also going to do a shameless plug here for the law office of Reed Felsing. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> we use Reed um, for some of this type of work on behalf of our clients. Um, and he does a really stellar job with it. So here's a shameless plug for the law office of Reed Felsing. If you've got questions, about these organizations. Maybe you're looking to get something done in your community. Maybe you're looking to start a charity. Highly recommend my friend Reed. Thank you very much, Adrian. All right, thanks for <laughs> joining us on Ticket Splitters, and we'll talk to you in two weeks.